Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring Chapter 1 of Dead Man Innocent, a Mark Banning mystery, written by Stephen L. Brooks. One of the reasons Mark Banning had become a private detective was to help with those seemingly lost cause cases no one else would take. The case Deidre Hammond begged him to take seemed hopeless. DNA evidence proved her brother had raped and killed a six-year-old. Months had passed since Deidre's brother Sam had been executed, protesting his innocence up to the moment of execution. But all the evidence had pointed to him unerringly. It was too late to save her brother, but not too late to clear her brother's name and see that justice was served to the real criminal, whomever that might be. So she brought her case to Mark Banning and pleaded for his help. When he heard the case against her brother, Banning thought it was a lost cause, and he hated to take her money. But she was insistent, and lost causes were his specialty, so he accepted the assignment reluctantly. The deeper Banning dug, the more dead ends he found. Had it been a case of mistaken identity? No. Even the DNA evidence had led exclusively to Sam. Then maybe the lab had botched it? Deidre's family had cut all ties with them long ago, at about the time of Sam's arrest. The reasons for it were vague and mysterious. Was there some long-buried secret regarding Deidre and Sam, unknown perhaps even to all, or nearly all, of the family as well? Just when Banning was about to give up, he must have gotten a little closer to an answer than he realized because someone struck him down and left him to die. The real killer had made a mistake. He had proved Deirdre was right, and he had made it personal. Banning would stop at nothing now to catch him. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Dead Man Innocent. Chapter 1 Death Brings a Client Sam Rogers was tall, broad-shouldered, with close-cut red hair and the freckles that accompanied it. His eyebrows were even lighter than his hair, and his eyes, robin's egg blue. He was a striking individual, and made a lasting impression upon all who saw him. His ready smile made you instantly believe you had known him most of your life, even if you had just met. Tonight, he sat alone on a hard cot, clad in an orange jumpsuit. His head was bowed, and his great hands were clasped. He had just finished his prayer when he heard footsteps approaching down the corridor. He looked only briefly around the eight-foot square that had been his home for several months. He had been in prison for almost two years. The first month or two before and during the trial, a few more during the rounds of appeals, and finally, this single cell on death row. The warden, a trio of guards, and the minister stopped outside the cell. It's time, the warden said. Sam nodded. He took a slender, leather-bound Bible from his rude, single bookshelf and thumbed through it to the passage he had marked in Job. But I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand up at the last upon the earth, and after my skin hath been thus destroyed, yet from my flesh shall I see God. He read it again as one of the guards unlocked and opened his cell. 
One of the guards approached with the manacles, and Sam said, Just a moment, Reverend. The minister, a tall, thin man with thinning white hair and small wireframe glasses, entered the cell. Yes, Sam? Sam handed him the Bible. Could you see that my sister gets this? Our mother gave us each one on our 18th birthdays. I think she'd like to have mine. Reverend Jameson smiled sadly and said, I'll see to it, Sam. He had been the pastor at the Rogers Church for several years and knew both Sam and Deidre, his sister, as well as their late mother. Cassandra Rogers had never recovered from the day she heard sentence passed upon her son and had died within a year of the trial. Manacled hand and foot, Sam was led down the corridor. As they had agreed the night before, Reverend Jameson read three pre-selected passages. The Love Chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The Resurrection Passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 51 through 55. And of course, the 23rd Psalm. He entered the room without any resistance and calmly allowed himself to be laid upon the cruciform table. As they unlocked the manacles one by one and replaced those restraints of metal with ones of heavy leather, he drew one deep breath after another. As each thick strap was tightened about the extremity of a limb, it was as though a spike had been driven through that part of him. A wide belt, the last restraint, was buckled about his middle. The doctor, masked and gloved and wrapped in white, peered at him through his glasses neutrally. He gave his name, and Sam nodded a greeting. The doctor said a few other things, but Sam didn't listen. His mind was focusing on other concerns now, besides what was about to happen to him. An attendant, clothed and masked like the doctor, came to his side. A needle pierced his arm, and an IV tube was attached. All the preliminary work had been done. The warden asked if he was ready, and Sam breathed a yes. The heavy curtains that separated him from the men and women who had gathered as witnesses parted. The curiosity of some, the grim vengeance of the victim's family, the detachment of the crime reporters, all stared at him. He slid his eyes over each of them. He knew the family, from their appearances on television and their presence during the trial. He searched for one face and found it, his sister, Dee Dee. She had the same red hair and fair, freckled skin as he. But she was small, barely over a hundred pounds. Her hair, a little darker than his, was tied back severely. He smiled. He had always liked when she wore the nearly unruly mane, loose and natural. She usually favored sweats and t-shirts and jeans. But she cleaned up nicely when she dressed up, as now. Reverend Jameson was sitting next to her and she was clutching his Bible in her small, strong hands. Her husband, Tony, was sitting on her other side. The warden asked him if he had any last words. Yes. He found the victim's family again and said, My heart goes out to all of you for the tremendous loss you suffered. No parent should have to lose a child, and no child should lose her life at so young an age. Donna Marconi had been only seven. Sam concentrated on Mrs. Marconi, Donna's mother. I'm so sincerely sorry for what happened to your little girl and for the horrible death she suffered. 
he paused. They weren't quite the words he had wanted to use. He could see Vivian Marconi start crying afresh, and her husband Frank put his arm around her and glared at Sam. I know you hoped to hear me proclaim remorse, and believe me, I am truly sorry. But I know you hoped to hear other words, words of confession, words of admission. You sat in the courtroom every day of the trial, and I imagine you came hoping to hear those words from me. I'm sorry, but they are words I cannot give. Even now. Throughout that entire time, I've proclaimed my innocence. I proclaim it here again. In a few minutes, I go to stand trial again. This time, before the supreme judge of the world. I'm not without sin. I make no claim towards sainthood. But I say again, and I will say before my Lord, I did not commit the crimes for which I'm about to leave this world. I only pray that, in time, the man who did commit those crimes, the one who truly took your daughter from you, will be found and made to pay the price I'm about to pay for him. He turned again to his sister, his only family to have come. Goodbye, Dee Dee. The curtains were closed again. He was aware of the attendant inserting a needle into the IV shunt. The room softened into a blur. He didn't sense the attendant administering the second shot, but it was only a few seconds before he felt the effects. The gray blur darkened, faded to black. He felt himself falling asleep. When he awoke, the darkness was fading into light. He smiled when he saw who was waiting for him on the other side. Mark Banning's office was not large, but it was the best he could afford. It was basically two rooms on the ground floor of an old Perry Hall bungalow, badly in need of a good paint job. But that wasn't his outlook. It was the responsibility of his landlord, and if that worthy didn't see fit to hire a painter, or better yet, protect it with siding, there was nothing Banning could do about it. He paid his rent on time, mostly. Kept the interiors of the offices neat, mostly. And that's all that was required, mostly. His office was the larger of the two, with a nice-sized desk, credenza with four-function device, file cabinet, a couple of chairs and a couch for customers. None of the furniture was new, but it was serviceable and clean. He was six foot, trim and muscular without bulk. His hair had been brown, but had darkened a year or two before as he had turned thirty. Betsy Connors held down the outer waiting room. She was short, with auburn hair and a perpetual light tan. She was quick and efficient, and if pressed, he would admit he had a thing for her. Not because she was quick and efficient, but because, well, you get the idea. Business had been fairly good lately. He had just that morning turned over evidence he had gathered on an adultery case. He didn't like that kind too much, but he liked adultery even less. When he decided to tie the knot, whether it was with Betsy or someone else, he was going to do it forever. Today had been less than slow. No one had come in. No cases were pending. There was nothing work-related to do. He was reading the latest Clancy when he heard the outer door open. There was a murmur of voices for a moment and a knock at his door. Yes, Betsy? Betsy opened the door about a foot or so. There's a Mrs. Hammond here to see you, she said. Mark closed his novel and put it in a drawer.
Good. Show her in. Mark rose as Betsy ushered in Mrs. Hammond. He shook her hand, waved her to a seat, and sat behind his desk. What can I do for you, Mrs. Hammond? He hoped it wasn't another adultery case. Mr. Banning, I don't know if you recognize my name or face. I'm Deidre Hammond. You do look familiar, he said with a thoughtful frown. Perhaps if I gave you my full name, Deidre Rogers Hammond. Rogers? That name rang a bell. So did the nickname that had been associated with her in the news, Dee Dee. Are you Sam Rogers' sister? I am. Yes. Now I remember you. From the news at the time of the trial. That's right. Then you must remember that we all maintained Sam's innocence throughout the trial, and even just before his execution. Yes. And if your brother was indeed innocent, I'm very sorry. Sometimes our legal system grinds the wrong way, and the wrong person pays for a crime. My brother was innocent. I know he couldn't possibly have raped and murdered a seven-year-old girl. Mark nodded sympathetically. I'm sorry this happened to you, but I don't understand why you came to me. When Sam was in prison, we tried several times to appeal the case. Each time it was turned down. We wanted his attorney to appeal to the Supreme Court itself, but after three tries in other courts, he gave up. The problem was, the police were satisfied that Sam was guilty and had closed the case. They refused to search for any new evidence. Do you believe there is evidence that would have proven your brother not guilty? Yes, if they had kept looking and found the man who really did this horrible thing, Sam wouldn't have had to die. Had you thought of hiring a private detective while your brother was in prison? We wanted to, but couldn't afford it. The legal bills were eating out most of our money. When Sam died, a trust fund that was in his name was transferred to me through his will. I want to use that money to clear his name. And more importantly, find the animal who really hurt and killed that little girl. I'm not that familiar with the case, but I have a friend on the force. I can talk with him, get some idea of just what evidence they had against him, and see if there's anything they may have forgotten. Thank you, Mr. Banning. I'm glad you'll take the case. She started to reach into her pocketbook. She retrieved a pen, and he knew a checkbook was about to follow. You can give your check to Miss Connors out front. She'll explain our fee schedule and terms. Mrs. Hammond smiled. Thank you, Mr. Banning. Thank you again. He rose as she went out of the room, following her and closing the door. He noted the time and marked it down on a notepad. Picking up the receiver, he dialed the phone. His contact at the county police, who was Betsy's cousin, answered on the third ring. Ed Taylor, homicide. Hey, Ed, this is Mark. Yeah, Mark, what's this about? You remember the Rogers case? Rape and murder. He did it to a little girl, six or seven, I think. Seven. I just had a visit from Rogers' sister, and she says he didn't do it. They were saying that all through the trial. We thought otherwise. Any problem with me coming down and talking it over with you? No problem. You'll come to the same conclusion we did, but if I don't let you come down, I'll hear it from my cousin. I'd rather get chewed out by the chief. Good. I'll be down in about half an hour. Banning drove his black Cherry MG into the lot. The car was a gift from an ex-girlfriend. 
Her wealth and his moderate income were one of the reasons they split up. He eased himself out of the car and locked it. He entered the police station and nodded to the officer at the front desk, who waved back. Banning was well known. He went back to Ed's desk. Ed Taylor was about medium height, compact, and wore his dark hair a little short. He was in shirt sleeves, his solid black tie slightly askew. He half rose from his swivel chair and shook Banning's hand. Both men sat down. I don't know what I can tell you, Mark. All the evidence was against Rogers. There was nothing to prove he didn't do it. Not even an alibi? He said he was home by himself watching a movie. What movie? Red River. He was a John Wayne fan. Did you check the TV listings? Was the movie on that night? We found a DVD of it in his house, so he could have watched it any time. Including the night of the murder? Sure. But there was no way we could prove he'd watched that DVD that night. Only his word. And against his word, you had the statements of an eyewitness. Right. And the statement of the little girl herself. She identified him? From a picture, on her deathbed. Carried a lot of weight with the jury, I'll tell you that. One of your men testified that she'd ID'd him on her deathbed? Yeah, our sketch artist. We still call him that, though it's all done with computer images nowadays. Banning nodded. I have to admit I don't remember that much about the case. I remember they found her after a couple of days, wandering along the road. She collapsed. A good Samaritan found her and took her to the hospital. One of the docs recognized her from the Amber Alert and called our hotline. We called the parents and met at the hospital. But she died soon after that. Later that day, we figured she had been left in the woods, made it to the road, and passed out. The perp probably thought she was dead. She almost was. She was able to give us a description for the sketch artist, who produced a picture. The girl was awake long enough to see that sketch and identify the man. Shortly after that, she slipped into a coma and never came out of it. When news of where she had been picked up hit the TV and papers, a woman came forward and said she'd seen a man running from that spot the day after she had been taken. We showed her the sketch, and she said it looked like the man she saw. How did you match the sketch to Sam Rogers? When the sketch was shown on the news, someone called in and said it looked like a neighbor. We called him in, got a blood sample, and matched it with the DNA from the girl. You got a DNA match? Sure did. Far as we were concerned, that clinched it. I should say so. That stuff's pretty final. So is the stuff they put in that needle he got. Banning scratched behind his ear. You know, I have only one problem with the death penalty. What's that? Well, some crimes are so heinous that a needle in the arm isn't good enough. Timothy McVeigh should have been manacled into a chair that was bolted to the floor in the center of a building scheduled to be demolished and left there a couple of weeks before they blew it up, without him knowing when. Whew, Draco had nothing on you. Pat's taking an eye for an eye to a whole new level. The other part of it is this. What if you get the wrong guy? You think we got the wrong guy here? I don't know. His sister thinks so, and I've been hired to prove it. From what you say, there doesn't look like there's much doubt. Jerry didn't find any. Then I'll have to. Banning rang the doorbell at the Hammond home. Deidre Hammond answered and invited him in.
They sat in the living room, and she brought coffee. She set it upon the coffee table, which Mark found interesting. Except in movies or TV, he had rarely seen a coffee table actually used in serving coffee. Have you found anything yet, Mr. Banning? Deidre said. No. In fact, everything the police have seems to point to your brother's guilt. He reviewed with her what Ed had told him. I know. I remember the lawyer telling us about all the evidence during the trial. He tried to plea bargain the case, but the DA's offer was still a 20-year sentence. Sam insisted on sticking it out and proving his innocence. Unfortunately, he couldn't. Who was the lawyer? Daryl Anderson. He's one of the best. The best we could afford. The cards were stacked against him. The police had a very strong case. And you believe what the police said? Do you believe Sam was guilty? That's the main thing I came to tell you, Mrs. Hammond. In spite of everything my friend Ed told me, I think it's just too pat. I believe Sam was innocent, and I intend to prove it. We hope you enjoyed listening to the sample chapter from Dead Man Innocent. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.